chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this great passage together, let's just ask for the Lord's help. God our Father, we now ask you that you would use your word this evening to strip away our fears, our doubt, And our unbelief. We acknowledge that we can only understand anything from your word. If your spirit reveals it to us. So we pray Lord that your spirit would be free to work in our hearts. And to reveal Christ to us. And we pray that all that is said this evening would be for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his worthy name. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you have ever planned a time of vacation or a rest and you had it turned into a crisis. Maybe uh, a camping trip turned into a flood or a, a trip up to the cottage turned into a trip to the emergency room for the weekend. 
Most of us, if we're parents, we have had that kind of experience. Well, in this passage, we have the 12 disciples, and they find themselves in a crisis. Twice. They had set out for a day of rest, and they find themselves in a crisis. One brought about by man, and another brought about by nature. A crisis has a way of revealing what's really going on in our hearts, doesn't it? What the true state of our heart is. You know, when everything is sort of ticking along nicely, we can kind of cover up the chinks in our armor. But in a crisis, it's all out there for everyone else to see. Well, the first crisis came about when their quiet time with the Lord was interrupted by the arrival of 5,000 Men, the unexpected arrival of 5,000 men plus women and children who all needed to be cared for and fed. I say unexpected, not unexpected, of course, by the Lord. He knew they were coming, but unexpected by the disciples. And the second crisis was a storm that they got caught in out in the Sea of Galilee. But in both, the test was the same. Would they deal with the crisis in their own strength or would they recognize that they were in the presence of the Son of God, the Lord of life, and would they turn to him in faith? Well, if these crises were a test to reveal how they would respond under pressure, they also provided an occasion for the fourth and the fifth signs that are recorded for us in John's Gospel. And these signs were specifically designed so that they and we with them would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name as we have said so often. We find that in the 20th chapter verse 31. Well you say, did the disciples not yet believe? Did they not yet have life? In his name, well, I believe they did. Eleven of them did anyway. But remember what it says in John's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 10. I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. You can have life in Christ, yet not really live in the joy of it because of blind unbelief of the power and the goodness in the heart of God for you. And so in these two signs, we see the Lord using these two crises to strip away their unbelief. And it's my prayer that he will use his word this evening to do the same for us. Well, before we jump into the passage then, we need to get a little bit of context. And we get help here from the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke we get a bit of the context. We find out what was happening immediately before this. So in those three Gospels, we hear that this happens immediately after Herod's wicked act of beheading John the Baptist. And Mark tells us that it was at a time of great weariness for the Lord and his disciples who had been so so busy healing and preaching that they had not even had time to eat. And Luke tells us that it was at a time of wonder for the disciples were returning from a work in healing and they were overwhelmed by the power of God that had worked through them to bring healing to others. And in John we find that it was in the springtime. 
the Passover was at hand, and it was some undefined time between this event and the Lord's confrontation with the Jews over the Sabbath and over the identity that he claimed as the Son of God, which had resulted in them desiring to kill him. So the crisis came at a time when they were already facing wickedness, coping with weariness and overcome with wonder. But that was not by chance. It was designed that way by God who often must take us to the end of our rope so that we will learn to depend on him. So that's the when. How about where? Where did this all take place? Well, Matthew and Mark tell us that it was in a lonely place. Luke, that it was in Bethsaida, which is on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And John tells us that it was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the cooler, mountainous area in a place where there was much grass, probably near the Golan Heights. And why? Why were they there? Well, the Lord had brought them there for a time of rest. He had said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. So Jesus brought them to the site of the first crisis, just as he sent them away in the boat where they encountered the second crisis. But all the time he was watching over them, working in them that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. Well, I don't know if you noticed it, but in the passage that we read, the Lord gives three commands. And I'd like to use those three commands as three topics to help us to simplify the way in which we approach this passage. And those three commands are this. In verse 10, sit down. And in verse 12, gather up. And in verse 20, do not be afraid. Sit down. Gather up, do not be afraid. And we'll consider this passage under those three headings. First of all, sit down. Well, by now many people have seen the signs that the Lord has been doing, and it's quite difficult to avoid the crowds. So here we have the Lord with his disciples on a mountain, and in this desolate place, And they are followed there by a great crowd of people because, as we see in verse 2, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. sick. But the focus here is not on the multitude, but rather on the disciples, specifically the 12 disciples. Jesus is preparing his 12, and he wants to strengthen their faith. So he gives them a test. And in verse 5 we read, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, what should Philip have said? Well, where had Philip just been? We've already said that he had been engaged in a healing and preaching ministry. We found that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He had seen the power of the Lord Jesus at work and had perhaps even been a conduit for that power as he had cast out demons and healed the sick. And he knew it wasn't his own power. But you know, it's possible for us to know the power of God in the lives of others, but not know that it is sufficient for our lives and for our circumstances. 
Also, Philip knew something of the Lord Jesus from the scriptures. Because remember what he had said in the first chapter? Remember what he had said to Nathanael? We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So given that, given that he had experienced the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and, that, and what he knew of the Lord Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures, what should he have said? Well, he could have said, Lord, didn't you say to the prophet Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I mean, you said that, Lord, so why don't you just supply without money and without price? Or if he had thought about what he knew about the Lord Jesus from Moses, he might have said, I have to believe, Lord, that there was more than 5,000 people in the wilderness when you were leading your people from Egypt to Canaan, and God fed them in the wilderness with manna, and God is your father, and you're doing the works of God, so I know you can do that, Lord. But even though Philip knew about the Lord from Scripture, and by the power that it healed others, when challenged with this personal practical problem, he reverts to thinking in terms of his own power and what he can do. And he says, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? A paraphrase might be, should I go and work for eight months? Now, we've got to be not too hard on Philip, unless we can honestly say that we don't, we don't do the exact same thing ourselves. When we're faced with a problem, our first consideration is often, how can I fix this? How can I buy my way out? Borrow my way out? Work my way out? Talk my way out? And you know, we can waste a lot of time trying to do things in our own strength when we fail to recognize the practical implications of our relationship to the Son of God. Jesus did in one moment what would have taken Philip eight months to do a half job of. Now what about Andrew? Andrew said, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? See, Andrew inadvertently despised and devalued the very means by which the Lord would provide. It's doubtful that he would even have been brought the boy's lunch to the Lord had the Lord not said in Mark 6 and 38, how many loaves do you have? Go look. The Lord had sent them to take inventory. And it's only when he's compelled to do that that Andrew finds this unnamed boy who willingly gives up his whole lunch. Seems that the greatest display of faith here was from a little boy. And yet Andrew felt that this boy's offering was unworthy of consideration. And that's where leaning on our own understanding gets us. Countless wasted years as we despise the very thing that God wants to use to meet the needs of his people. And we consider that the gifts that he has bestowed upon us are of no value at all. So what should Andrew have said? Well, maybe this. Lord, there's a little lad here. He only has five loaves of bread and two fish, but 
I remember what you did for that widow during the time of famine who only had a handful of flour and a little jar of oil, how you sustained her through three years of famine with just that. And Lord, I remember in Elisha's time how there was that woman who had just a little bit of oil and she thought it was nothing and she was afraid of losing her sons to the creditor and you used that little jar of oil to fill every single vessel that she could bring into the house. And Lord, I remember that other time when that man brought the first fruits um, to Elisha, his first fruits, and it was only 20 barley loaves and the servant was embarrassed to put it in front of of a hundred men, and yet when he did, they all had everything that they needed and more was left over. And Lord, you're greater than Elijah and you're greater than Elisha. So Lord, just take these and do with them what you will and I'll be happy to help distribute them. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, And let's not be too hard on Andrew Because don't we often do the very same thing? When we see needs far greater than we can meet and we're struggling with our own anxieties and insecurities, do we not despise the gifts and provisions that he has put into our hands? Sometimes we forget that the Lord who can provide from nothing often chooses rather to multiply the little things that are laid willingly at his feet like this little boy's lunch. But how does the Lord respond? He says in verse 10, have the people sit down. And then in verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed, to, he distributed them to those who were seated. Who got fed? It was those who were seated. It reminds me of when I was a little kid and my mom would call Um, my siblings and I, to the table. And we were just wanting to finish up playing with this or doing that, and we were sort of clowning around. And finally, my mother would say, no one's getting served until you're sitting down. Now, why is that important? Because people that are seated are resting from their own work. The disciples needed to learn that in all their labors for the Lord, the key to not burning out is resting in the knowledge of who the Lord Jesus is. It's not restful to feel that you need to work for eight months to do the work of one day and to feel that your resources are so inadequate that they're not even worth considering. And that is why we get so anxious about our responsibilities in our families and in the church And at work, because we fail to enter into the rest that we have in Christ. And so we attack them with the belief that it's all on us. That unless we stay up late and get up early and exert Herculean effort, that we will fail. The 18th century German hymnist, Gerhard Tristigen, put it this way, and I quote, Your own self-will and anxiety... Your hurry and labor disturb your peace and prevent me from working in you. Look at the little flowers in the serene summer days. They quietly open their petals and the sun shines into them with its gentle influences. So I will do for you if you will yield yourself to me. Close quote. Your own self-will 
and anxiety. Your hurry and labor disturb your peace and prevent me from working in you. So we see the Lord taking the little boy's lunch and giving thanks for it. What they devalued and despised, the Lord gave thanks for. And the next time that you're tempted to complain about what you don't have, stop and consider what you do have and look up to heaven and thank God for it and then release it to him and see what he does. Well, that brings us to the Lord's next command in our second topic, gather up. We've talked about sit down. Now we're going to talk about gather up. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments. Now, what is the point of this? When Jesus can effortlessly provide so much, and they're already, already, uh, they're already full, why did they need to gather up these fragments? Well, I think the Spirit of God placed this here for a greater reason than just to teach us not to waste food, as important as that is. Where else do we read in the scriptures about people gathering up food in the wilderness off the ground for a future time? Well, you say, of course, the manna in the wilderness when the children of Israel were going from Egypt to Canaan. And yet, they were not to gather more than they needed for that day. Do you remember that? Except for one day. And that was the day before the Sabbath. They were to gather more that day so that they would have they would not have to gather, they could rest on the Sabbath. And I like to think that the next day that the disciples would have had a break from having to find food as they enjoyed the fruit of this miraculous sign. And as they did, they would remember that it did not come through work but through resting in him. And it would have reminded them, as it should remind us, that he, the Lord, is the source of, of eternal rest, as we have in Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the basket of fragments would have been a reminder that rest, eternal rest, comes only from believing on Jesus Christ, the one in whom the one whom the Father had sent. As Jesus said in the previous chapter, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Well, after the multitude is fed, we read in Matthew and Mark that Jesus immediately made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. It seems that The Lord didn't detect in the disciples a suitable frame of mind to send the multitude away graciously in their wearied state. So Jesus makes the disciples go ahead in the boat while he sends the people off. But the Lord isn't done with the disciples. He has led them through one storm and now he's sending them into another. For they still have something to learn about storms and rest and faith. 
And we'll deal with that in our next topic. But before we come to that, in verses 14 and 15, we get the reaction of the multitude to this sign. Jesus knew that they would try forcibly to make him king. Now, why was that? Was that because they finally recognized that this indeed was the Lord Jesus, the Son of God? No. To really understand their motivation, we have to look ahead to verse 26, where, we, where Jesus says to them the following day, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They were seeking him because they saw in him someone who would give them exactly what they wanted. Free meals, free health care, no work, power. Imagine the power of a kingdom where there was limitless supplies of food and free health care. They wanted Jesus to be king so that he could give them exactly what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to be the king for the same reason that their forefathers had wanted Saul to be king. You see, they totally missed the purpose of the sign. The sign was so that they would recognize who he was, not so that they would lust after what he could give them. And we know that these people have present-day counterparts, don't they? They want a God who will give them what they want, a God who will give them the desires of their rebel hearts. And we have so-called preachers running around offering these things in the name of Jesus and calling it the gospel. But it's not the gospel. A gospel that requires no repentance and merely promises to satisfy the lusts of unregenerate hearts is no gospel at all. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus knew that this was what was in their heart, in the heart of those who desired to make him king. And so he withdraws from them to, to a mountain by himself. And from that mountain, the Lord looks across the waters. And he sees the disciples caught in a storm. And this takes us to our last point. And the Lord's last command, third command, do not be afraid. Well, it's dark as the Lord looks across the waters from the mountain and sees the twelve struggling through the storm. But the darkness doesn't hide them from the Lord, does it? For we have in Psalm 139, the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. And so in Mark 6 we read, and seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. Why had he sent them out there on their own? And why do we feel so often that we're out there on our own, struggling on our own in the dark? Well, perhaps the Lord realized that the fourth sign had not been enough to fully convince them that not only was he the son of God, but he was their God. Hours before, in the presence of the Lord of life, the creator and sustainer of the universe, they had felt that the only answer to feeding the 5,000 was to work harder. And now struggling against the wind and waves, he will give them another opportunity to choose between striving in their own strength or letting him in and handing over the oars. 
Now, if you look at this from the disciples' perspective, you have to have a little bit of compassion for them at this point. They had been promised a time of rest, and instead they're forced to be hospitable to a massive crowd. They had felt rebuffed for their impatience and unbelief, and they had been sent away alone. It's pitch dark, and suddenly they're fighting a strong wind in massive ways, and perhaps they're thinking, can this day get any worse? And then it did. Out in the churning black waters, the lamp in their boat reflects off something in the water. Something above the water. Was it a wave? And then they see it again, and it's coming closer, and suddenly they see a figure moving across the surface of the water, completely unaffected by the raging wind and waves. Now, I've been in boats many times in the dead of night and sometimes in rough water. And it can be a bit creepy being way out like that in the middle of nowhere in the dark and seeing just churning waters all around you. And the only thing you see is from the light inside your boat is just a few feet around the boat. Now, if at a time like that, I was to see someone walking to me across those waters, that would be absolutely terrifying. But think about that. The source of their terror was the Lord himself. The source of their terror was the Lord himself because they did not recognize him. They did not recognize him because he was not where they thought he should be and he was not doing what they thought he should be doing. And so when they see this figure walking through the midst of the storm, completely unaffected by the powerful waves and wind, They're terrified. Maybe they even wanted to try to get away. But then they hear a powerful voice coming to them through the wind and waves. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. You know, some of us here this morning are anxious and afraid because overwhelming circumstances are threatening to undo us, do us. But did you ever consider that the very thing that is terrifying you may be God showing up in response to your prayer? That the very thing that is terrifying you may be God showing up in response to your prayer? As the hymn writer William Cowper put it, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Our Lord is a solid rock in the surging waves of turmoil and change and rides upon the raging storms of life. And into your darkness this morning, he declares, or this evening, he declares, it is I. Do not be afraid. What remains for us is to recognize him and to let him into our boat. Well, the passage concludes with this, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The disciples had started the day expecting a time of rest. And in the end, they received it, not on a mountaintop, but down in the valley. 
Their striving was over. And safe on the other shore, perhaps they enjoyed the remains of the loaves and fishes that they had collected earlier, resting in the knowledge that whether in green pastures or in the valley of the shadow of death, the good shepherd would never leave them in life or in death. All that is, I should say, except one. For Judas was one of the twelve, and though he experienced all of this, he never believed, and he never found life through his name. And it makes me wonder whether there is someone here this evening who has never believed and has never received life through his name. You know, it's possible to know so much about the Lord Jesus Christ, to have all the answers, but not to really know him personally as your Savior and find life in his name. Why do you keep running? Can I ask you that? Why do you keep running as he calls to you through the wind and waves and the storm? I urge you to stop. To stop struggling in your own, in your own strength and as the waves of difficulty and depression and despair seek to or threaten to capsize your boat. The Lord is passing by. And the question is, will you let him in and give him the oars? I pray that you'll come to him, that you'll turn to him this evening in repentance and faith. And for those who do know and love the Lord, the Lord wants us to enjoy abundant life. The fragments that the disciples gathered up sustained them, didn't they, in the days ahead. And when we come to the Lord's table, we find the nourishment to sustain us for the days ahead as well. And as we meditate on Christ and on his work, we find the tyranny of our own, we we find rest from the tyranny of our own labors. And we remember that he gave for us his body on the cross and shed for us his precious blood. And we remember that we are his and that he is ours and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's come to the Lord's table together this morning.